Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and I'm really excited in this episode to be bringing you my conversation that I recorded face-to-face with David Whitkin in Los Angeles. It was terrific to be able to be with him and meet him face-to-face after having a couple of episodes on this podcast being done remotely. Always good to uh, meet the people who have been responsible for great performance. And, And David's fund you'll hear has a compound annual growth rate of a little over 19% since it started back in 2011. Of course, that's in US dollar terms that David's talking about. It actually works out to be a little over 24% per annum compound annual growth rate in Australian dollar terms. We touch on and remind people what merger arbitrage and event-driven investing is, what the environment currently is like, and how David sees things going forward in this increased regulatory oversight area for mergers and acquisitions. Uh, We even touch a little bit on what David thinks is gonna happen with the Live Golf and PGA proposed merger. I think you'll enjoy this episode. Been a great source of return over uh, the last few years for people exposed to this fund. Um, As always, people are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the back of the podcast and make sure everybody understands that there's no specific or general advice being provided in this podcast and people are encouraged to get their own advice and of course read all offer offer documents. You are however encouraged to keep your feedback coming in. The suggestions for people who we have on the podcast and the subjects we tackle are greatly appreciated. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. David Whitkin, welcome back to Inside the Rope. Great to be back for the third time. It's fantastic. Third time and a special time in that I'm actually here in Los Angeles uh, doing it face to face for the first time. So we won't have to deal with any of those glitches or little bumps that we get when we're doing it over Zoom or similar. So uh, absolutely terrific to be with you face to face. For Um, sure. Although we've got a little bit of marine layer, which I've learned about in the last couple of days. I thought thought Los Angeles was always sunny, but here you go. No, you've got the June gloom, which we're known for. But but around around 2 p.m. it'll wear off, so you can can have a a good afternoon by the ocean. Nice. now, just as a very, very quick reminder for some of our people who, the listeners who haven't listened to the podcast, maybe you can introduce yourself to them. Sure. Uh, my name is David Whitkin, and my firm is Barrel Capital Management. It's an event driven hedge fund that has been in existence since 2011. Uh, we've been partners with Coda since 2018, I believe. Uh, so thank you for, for your partnership. My history is uh, I've had always wanted to to work on Wall Street and be an investor since I was a kid uh, and got my first job at Bear Stearns in the early 2000s. I had the mis I'd like to say the misfortune of meeting the head of Bear Stearns merger arbitrage desk when I was in college. And I say misfortune because I should have met you know, the head of some long-only tech investing firm and gone on to kind of an easy life of, of riches. But instead, uh, we've been scraping away at re- returns in, in an arbitrage sense um, for almost 25 years now. But I uh, got my first job. He gave me my first job at Bear. Um, I worked, and their desk was, was known to be 
uh, the best merger arm desk on Wall Street. So I got a very good uh, education in how to analyze deals and, and how to think about different situations, which, which we can talk about. Um, worked for two different other hedge funds in New York subsequent to Bear, and went on my own in 2011. And, and here we are in, in 2023. Uh, it's been quite a ride. And, and it, I think been. you've been quite modest there. I think you went to school when you, when you met the head of Bear. You, you're at Harvard, and I think you graduated magna cum laude at Harvard, and I think you might have even written your thesis or your paper on um, Merger Arc. Um, and, and when you talk about the returns, I, I know that the fund has had a compound annual growth rate of 19%, so congratulations, and if that's just eking out, I'd be very happy to eke out at any time with you. So, mm. so well done. Um, I think it would be good if you just maybe explain at a high level what merger arbor, what merger arbitrage is, yep. and what event-driven hedge fund investing is, please. Sure. So, what merger arbitrage? The definition of that is capturing the difference between. It, 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 first of all, we're buying stocks that have agreed to be acquired. And when a company agrees to get acquired, there is a contract that says company A will receive X dollars per share. And what typically happens in, in the market, because there is a risk that a deal that has been signed ends up not closing, is that that stock trades at a discount to the price it will get if the deal's, deal closes. So the, the, the a very simple example is Company A is, is bumping along as an independent company at, at $30, but then one morning they, they announce a deal to be acquired for $50 a share. The price immediately jumps from $30 to, let's say, $49, and that $1 spread between $49 and $50 is the arbitrage spread. So ARBs like Barrel will, if we think the deal is going to close, we will pile in and buy the stock at 49. The fundamental holders are happy to make their $19 and they'll leave the last dollar on the table. And then if the deal closes, we capture that $1 spread. And you're leveraging into that? We do this, I'll have 20 to 30 of these on at any one time. Mm -hmm. We'll be in 100 to 200 positions in any one year. So whether we use leverage or not, and some ARBs do, some ARBs don't, we, we use a medium amount of leverage, I would say. The, the key is to accumulate a number of these wins where you make a dollar and I'm not perfect, we, we have deal breaks every year, but to minimize the, the quantity of deal breaks you have and, and hopefully minimize the position sizes that you had in deals that break. And if you sum it up at the end of the year, uh, arbitrage is supposed to be a profitable strategy because 95% of deals close. Most ARB funds try to target um, the risk-free rate plus three to 400 basis points. Mm -hmm. We have always targeted more than that simply because I started Barrel as a small shop and we had to make 
more than that to for for me to you know make a decent living um and so Beryl's style of, of portfolio construction is somewhat more concentrated than than our peers but we've proven to uh have done a good job in the in, you touch the there, you touch there, David, on the alignment of interest, mm-hmm. and it's one of the things that I guess we're always keen to talk to people about is the people running the money and making the decisions. How aligned is their future with that? How aligned is your future with Beryl? Well, ninety-five percent of my liquid net worth is in the Beryl funds, and I like to say that I have no idea how to invest in real estate. I'm not a very good uh, you know, equity stock picker. I don't know how to trade credit, but I do know arbitrage very well. And so this is where I think is the best place for my own money. So I, I, I do feel we have very strong alignment. And one of the reasons people tend to be attracted to this area, correct me if I'm wrong, is due to the lack of correlation or the mm-hmm. diversification it gives them. What is the diversification qualities of the asset class or this area, and then also of, of the barrel fund or track record of that? I mean, I'll just use 2022 as an example, where almost all assets, whether it was equities, bonds, commodities, were down quite a bit. We, I think you were up something like 1.8%. Yeah, and, and arbitrage strategies broadly were up, not a lot, but that in itself proved the marketing pitch that ARBs have been giving for decades. Mm-hmm. And it, in bull markets, people kind of lose sight of the fact that a, a predictable single digit or higher positive return that might not be exciting to a lot of people, um, but they certainly value it in years like 2022. And I, I will admit 2022 was a somewhat disappointing year for us, but we proved our value to our clients. And I, I think we have very grateful clients that where we were one of the only funds that made the money last year, or assets that made the money. And, and David, what sort of conditions do you sort of, you know, when, when you're writing out the Christmas list and you're asking for the mm-hmm. year ahead to look and feel like this, what type of conditions is a manager of you, in your strategy hoping for? What is most favorable? We want lots of deals and we want those deals to have big spreads. So the uh, 2021 had all of those ideal conditions. Now, as interest rates went up, the number of deals getting announced declined. So we're, we're not, I'd say on a scale of one to 10, right now we're in a six, um, which is still you know, good enough to, I, I believe, have a good year for our clients. Um, and the good the 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 uh, aspect that's counteracting the somewhat more muted deal environment is the bigger spread environment and that has been caused by some really crazy activity by antitrust regulators uh, especially in the US who have been making some very irrational decisions to block deals that shouldn't get blocked 
And for those investors, and we can spend as much time as you want on, on this, but for those uh, ARBs or, or investors who have positioned themselves so that they weren't hurt too much by those announcements, A, almost all of these merger block decisions are being challenged in court. So the, it, it will ultimately be up to a judge to decide whether these specific deals close. But also every other deal that's getting announced, there is more of a cloud of uncertainty of what a regulator is gonna say about these deals, which has created spread widening. And, and that's one thing that, that we think we're capitalizing on this year. And how do you profit out of that? How do you, I imagine it's your ability to analyze and make the correct judgment yeah. which way the regulator is going to, to go on something. How do you do that? Is that just yeah. experience? Is that research? Yeah. Well, there, there are two aspects that are important. One is the analysis of, oh, is this deal likely to close? We, and the other aspect, is position sizing because there is more risk of being wrong. And if you're wrong, you don't want that loss to cripple your, your year's returns or your quarter's returns. So you have to be skilled both in the analytical side and the portfolio management side. Now on the analytical side, uh, the bad thing is I've been around for 25 years. The good thing is I've been around for, for 25 years and you know tens of thousands of deals in every industry. So I have a good idea, I believe, uh, and my team has a good idea of, okay, how, how are biotech deals analyzed? How are supermarket mergers analyzed? Not only by regulators, but by judges. And what are the precedent cases that, that judges will look at when they're looking at the Activision deal that the FTC has, has tried to block. So and that, that comes from experience. It comes from being well advised. Like we, we have three great antitrust firms on retainer. And I'd like to think that like, well, I and my analysts don't have a law degree. Like we, we may as well have one because mm -hmm. we, we, we've seen so many of these deals. Um, it, it's just a lot of reps that, that gives us confidence that, you know, to take positions where we think are, we have an analytical edge and to stay away from the ones where we, where we don't is, is almost equally as important. And I remember we, we did a, a podcast and we spoke a, a couple of years ago when all the SPACs which seem to have dried up now and, and gone away as the froth has exited the market. Although some might argue that the froth's come back on. I think the S&P might be up 20% from October last year. Um, but I, I've never had a manager say, I'm seeing the ball like a watermelon sort of thing. I don't think you use those words, of course, but um, implied that, wow, this what's happening in the SPAC market where you could buy them at a discount mm -hmm. and have that, has that, opportunity in the SPACs completely evaporated now or is there any opportunity there for you? I, I think it's gone. Uh, One of know. the reasons it's a six out of ten environment. Yeah, I mean SPACs were one of those fat pitches that I think investors come across 
once or twice in their careers. Um, I hope for another fat pitch, but SPACs went from low risk, high reward then two years ago to low risk, low reward. I mean, you're, you're not going to lose money buying a SPAC trading below the cash that it has in trust, but the market isn't rewarding SPAC yeah. deal announcements. So the, the upside is less and we've moved away. And, and David, is the reason why deal flow is somewhat muted at the moment all because of the cash rates and the sudden increase in those? Uh, it's that and the regulatory uncertainty because companies are less likely to, to announce deals if they mm -hmm. think there's a risk that the deals will get blocked. Mm -hmm. Now, just to put all of this into context, uh, 2023 is likely to be the sixth highest year ever in M&A. So it, it's not like we're in a dry spell. It's, it's just come off the froth of 2021, which was a record year for M&A. And I think 2022 was like the fourth highest M&A year ever. Do you have, this is a, somewhat of an aside, but I have to declare a personal interest in following this. Do you have any interest, uh, or any view on the the Live Golf PGA, um, mm. you know, it's kind of interesting that yeah. this was a monopoly for so long and people complained about, oh, this upstart coming along and disrupting this. And, and then when they get together, yeah. they, they actually say, well, there might be an antitrust issue here. Hold your horses. Yeah, I, this deal's getting blocked. I'll go out on a limb and say that it, the combination of Live and PG and this, this is not a public M&A situation, so there's yes. nothing for us to do. Uh, but you had live an upstart competitor to the PGA, um, take your golfers away, offer better pay, uh, better competition for, for fans and for that, for the, for the two organizations to then combine with the admitted objective of eliminating that competition is something that the Department of Justice will not allow. Wow. And I, I would be short this deal if it were a public deal. Good, yeah. There yeah. you go. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, so, David, what, what should people investing in this area be thinking about at the moment? Antitrust. Um, especially the regulators have been so aggressive in the last six months. That what's caused them to be so aggressive? What's driving that? Is it political? Well, it, it's their ideological posture. So um, there, there's been a backlash against the rise of big tech, which would be Google, Amazon, Meta, Apple, Apple to some extent, <laughs> Microsoft. NVIDIA was, was blocked from, from buying ARM mm -hmm. last year, but, but especially Google, Amazon, Facebook. Uh, there, is, there is a belief, which I don't, necess which I, I don't share completely, although I do share in part, that these companies became too big and, and too uh, pervasive in, in some parts of consumers' lives, that they should be prevented from making more or getting bigger through acquisitions. 
and beyond big tech, there is a certain academic school of thought that companies in general, in pharma, in general industry, have become too big and that antitrust regulation was, was too relaxed over the last 25 years. And when Joe Biden got elected, he's not an antitrust expert, but I think he, like, he was co-opted by people in that sphere to appoint these very hawkish regulators as the head of FTC and the head of DOJ, uh, who are the two regulators here that, that review mergers. So that's just their bias. And that's the world that we have to live in. But the, the, the great thing about the US antitrust system is if a regulator says they're gonna block your deal, you can challenge their decision in front of an impartial judge. Um, and already in the last six months, there have been two deal blocks that have been overturned by judges and the deals were allowed to close. We happen to make money on that because one thing that, that I've done for, for 20 years now is, is follow court cases and read dockets every day and transcripts of trials and go to the trials if necessary. And we'll be doing a lot of that over the next six months. There, there, there are gonna be four or five antitrust trials in the next six months. And I think to answer your question, one thing that, that ARBs and investors in M&A will be looking at is not just what happens with these deals, but whether judges kind of have a massive uh, slapdown of the regulatory posture because they're these of the six cases that are that are being challenged right now there's only one of those six where if i were the regulator i would have blocked it as well the other five seem very benign um and, and what's yeah. what sort of percentage get overturned that originally blocked by the regulator but it, you know a, a court will overturn you know, what I mean, sort of rate is are we talking? Yeah, I mean, I like I I don't know the the exact number, but it would be around fifty fifty. Mm-hmm. Okay, but there, so that's pretty there, high. Yeah, but there's a survivorship bias in that number because the deals, his, historically speaking, the only deals that got challenged were the ones that were pretty obviously anti-competitive mm-hmm. on on their face. And so you only got the kind of the worst of the worst mergers being challenged in court. Mm-hmm. And they, those blocks should have been upheld. Okay. But I, I, as a betting man, I am betting that um, I'll say four or five out of these six will be uh, overturned and, and these deals will be allowed to close. David, I noticed of your history of returns um, going back to 2011 in, in the Beryl Fund um, that there can be some months where there's some pre- pretty significant volatility up and down. I noticed you know, back in July 2020, you had a, a pretty big drawdown, albeit that you had you know, circa in US dollars, 
21% up that year, which is a great year, mm. but in that one month in July, what sort of things lead to that sort of level of volatility intramonth? And should, and should yeah. people consider that as part of what comes with merger arbor, or was that highly unusual? People should not expect months like like July of 2020. Mm -hmm. That's not something I want or seek. And we, we actually, in, in our deck, have a full page dedicated to the mistakes in portfolio management um, that I made in that month that we've corrected so that no one needs to be afraid of a drawdown like that again. I'm fully willing to take some risks um, and have portfolio concentration, and I think that's absolutely paid off over time. Um, but the minus 20% months, or even minus 10% months, I'm not, they should not be tolerated in general. I am not tolerating them anymore. And so we've, we've made changes to how we do things at, at the firm so that those don't recur. So that, that's like one message that I want everyone to be clear about when we're talking about drawdowns. With that said, do you want me to talk about like what led to the drawdown Yeah, I think it'd be helpful just to give a little bit of color. Yeah. So it was roughly a third, a third, a third uh, in terms of what, what caused the, the drawdown in July of 2020. A third was just spread widening and specs going down, which happens. That ha it happened more severely in, in that month because 2020 was just a really volatile year in general. But that was one that, that doesn't really keep me up at night and um, is excusable. The other two were two types of trades that were, very, that were sized very large at that time um, and went against us. And from the lessons we learned from, from that month, we no longer size those kinds of trades anywhere close to what we did then. The first was a warrant versus stock arbitrage position in Nikola, which was a SPAC, which would have been a grand slam if, if it had worked, but proved to be very difficult to hedge in practice. And we had actually made 10% in that trade in the month of June, but lost 9% of that in July. Not doing those trades in, in any sort of size anymore. Mm -hmm. the, the last was a uh, deal that closed. It was El Dorado Resorts buying Caesars, the casino company. But when the deal closed, shareholders of Caesars were allowed to let, elect cash or stock. And what ARBs always do is when it comes time to make your election, you elect whatever's worth more at the time, which was stock. And you have to assume what everyone else is going to do. And you, it, it's logical to assume everyone else will elect the higher consideration, which is stock. And when you ha ARBs have election models, that spits out a quantity of stock of the acquirer that you should be short. And what happened was um, 
we ended up undershort the acquirer. And the largest shareholder, because the largest shareholder of Caesars, who was Carl Icahn, elected cash. And that threw off the model of how we were supposed to be hedged. And we had like a substantial unhedged position in El Dorado when the deal closed that went down. And we lost around 9% in that position. The lesson being, um, well, that was the only situation where a cash stock election had kind of thrown a curveball like that. We have to be aware that that can happen uh, when, it, when one shareholder can tip the scales like that. So we don't take big positions in elections anymore. There we go. Appreciate the uh, detail on that. Um, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it, David. It's great to always have you uh, on, on, on the series. Um, is there any, I'll give you the final say, is there anything else that you would like either investors into the fund or people considering it or, or looking at it to understand about Beryl and the space um, that you're operating in? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, well, deal breaks get a lot of airtime and they're, they're fun to read about and fun, there's, there's a lot of fear uh, that goes into investors' minds when they think, oh, well, isn't merger arbitrage kind of buying it? You, you, buy, you make a dollar if you're right, but you lose $20 if you're wrong. What I, what I think a lot of people fail to appreciate is 95% of all deals close anyways. And merger arbitrage is, is a, one of the safer, less volatile strategies. The knock on it has been that it has been lower returning than going long equities. I think you know, our track record speaks for itself in that if you do it, the strategy correctly, uh, you can have very high sharp ratios, very high risk adjusted returns. Um, so I think people should just keep in mind who is their manager. Like, if you're going to be in this strategy, is there alignment? Is there um, a demonstrable analytical and portfolio management edge? And how much does the manager care? And this, this is my life's work. I'm, I'm not really good at anything else. Uh, but therefore, I'm very invested in, in making sure that we, we keep our clients happy. Uh, our clients include me, my parents, my wife, you know, as, as well as you know, the, the many other investors that, that have fortunately given us um, our business. And so that's, you know, lastly, I want to thank you and Coda for your, your partnership over the years. It's been fantastic and I hope it continues for, for a long time to come. Terrific. David, thank you very much. It's a great way to finish the podcast. I love doing it in person here yeah. in LA. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com.
Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.